Hey, welcome to night school. Speaking of advertising recently, I'm not going to rant and rave about advertising, just do a little bit of my own, something I try not to do on here, but I do feel the need to mention it. Um, I set up an online store for backstock of various metal and experimental music that I've done over the last 15 years. You know, I know there's a small audience here and I hate to push, hey, check out my store. Come, come, shop, shop in my store. We got, st- we got, we got metal experimental music, metal and experimental music. No, I hate to push that on here, but I, I do feel the need to mention it. I think I have that right. But yeah, beyond the bizarre dot store dot com, b i z a r r e s t o r e n v y, beyond the bizarre dot store dot com. Just tapes, CDs, LPs. We got tapes, CDs, LPs. And if you're international, contact me first so I can do a better calculation. Um, just had to put that out there. If you're interested, I don't. I try not to get into that stuff on here. You know, that stuff, you know, certainly has been a big part of my life going back to when I was a teenager, but I'm on kind of the periphery of it these days. Um, but if you're interested, it's all there. But yeah, I mean, I, I, the thing is, I don't, I don't have a lot to say these days. I'm definitely in a dark night of the soul, and I've been through one of these before. I've been through many of these before. This one's pretty bad, I have to say. This is, I don't know, things haven't really felt this desolate to me for a long time. And I don't, I don't want to turn this into a therapy session because I can also have fun with it. What I've learned is that you can have fun with a, a dark night of the soul. But when you're going through this, it's like when you talk, it's like you're either just telling people how you're not feeling well or you're um, mad about something. You know, like basically, all, and, and I'm here, the thing is we've reached a point too, and I've noticed this with podcasts I listen to, because, you know, I really, I really don't listen to a lot of music these days, but I have a need to always have something on at night. Like if it's nighttime, I always need to have something on in the background. And since I don't really sit down and just listen to music as much as I used to, I'll just throw on podcasts, YouTube shows, that kind of thing. But I've noticed they're all uninteresting. And I don't think that's just me. It just seems like people don't have a whole lot to say that isn't just the same thing these days. Like there's either cultural commentary, like which is I'm certainly guilty of. There's politics. But since people haven't really been living that interesting of lives in the last couple of years, I mean, I know there are people who still do things. But even doing things seems so limited that it's like people aren't having truly interesting new experiences not that i need everything to be a story oh we went to we went to italy and we went to a bar and the guy there he was a professional juggler he was a professional juggler and he juggled knives and we did shots with the with the bartender who was a a professional gigolo you know it's not like i need stories like that i actually i don't mind people just telling mundane stories but People have fewer stories. They've run out of stories. And so there's just a lot of, you know, their cultural commentary, just sort of, can you believe they're doing this? I don't know. I think, to, to be honest, and again, maybe this is colored by my own dark night of the soul. But it does feel like we're, <laughs> like we're living in one of the most uninteresting little periods of time. And I'm not somebody who gets bored that easily. And I wouldn't even say I'm bored. 
I have plenty of stuff to do to fill my time. But it just seems like we're living right now in one of the most uninteresting periods that I can ever remember. Like people really had to pull from the depths over the last couple of years to make life interesting. And, and I feel like we've kind of exhausted our talking points. And of course, there will be more to come. But, uh, to you know, it's a good thing right now that I'm really disinterested and not paying much attention to what's going on. I don't know what the current news is with coronavirus. I don't know what people are saying about that. I, I have no clue what's going on politically. You know, in a week, just not paying attention for a week is, is a year. It's year. It feels like years ago. Like the most recent thing I heard is like war. We might be going to war in Ukraine. Might be going to war with Ukraine. Which just sounds, I mean, you might as well be speaking a foreign language to me. You might as well be speaking Ukrainian to me when you say that. But no, I don't know. It's a tough time for me. You know, it just, it's, uh, you know, I've been thinking about suicide a lot. Not that, not, not that I'm suicidal, but just thinking about the idea of it. As I've said before, I think about suicide sometimes, and I've done this since I was a teenager, but I think about it sometimes because I would rather think about it during times like this than to just get sucked down a hole one day and feel suicidal and not have entertained the thought at all. Like by entertaining the thought when I'm not suicidal, and I wouldn't even call it suicidal ideation, just acknowledging the possibility and reality of it, I feel like by doing that in times like this, it's it's less of a shock if things get worse. It's the idea is less uh, attractive even if I think about it more rationally during times like this. Even though I'm not feeling well, just thinking about it right now is a very rational thought. And I have three huge reasons not to kill myself. One is Batman. You know, I I just could never. I mean, Batman is is the light of my life. He truly is. Uh, He's just the light of my life. Two, my mother's love is just... I I used to think about this like years ago when I was really damaging myself with drinking and things like that. And I sort of had this death wish. I remember thinking like I could never actually do that because of my mom. I could never break my mom's heart in that way. And even though she's dead, I feel that even more. I could never desecrate her memory. I could never, because I, I don't believe it's just a memory, and I believe that love is enduring, and I could just never do that to her. Even though she's dead, I could never do that to her. The third reason is my ego. You know, I could never, you know, if I killed myself, it would just be, uh, I feel like it would give people too much of an opportunity to like, uh, <laughs> I don't even know. Let's just leave it at pride and ego. Like, I'm like, yeah, you know, uh, I would hate to think about people speculating as to why. I hate the way people interpret things enough. I hate the way people misinterpret me enough. And of course, if you're dead, you don't care. You know, of course, suicidal people reach a point where it's just like, I don't even care what people would think of it. But that's kind of a part of feeling this way, too, is like I think about talking to people. Not that I need to talk to people about how I'm feeling or like ask for advice or anything. But when I'm feeling this way in particular, which is just, 
morose and dark. The things other people say and want feel like such an immense burden. And even though people always say like, oh, talk to somebody. Oh, you should talk to somebody. And they mean, so, they mean well, I'm always here if you want to talk. I feel like the people who say that are the last people you want to talk to in that situation. And I don't mean that in a resentful way. I just mean it's the truth. Like the sort of people who volunteer that kind of stuff. They're probably the person that when you go to them, they're like, well, maybe you should see a therapist. Or they give you some Psych 101 analysis of what you're going through. Not that Psych 101 has no purpose. Not that paint-by-numbers psychology doesn't help sometimes. But it's, it's simply one of those things where it's like, uh, the reality is you don't really want to talk to people. You know, and a lot of people don't want to hear it. I mean, I've mentioned before how there's people out there and this was an idea that actually like took off among women, which is these template responses. This was an idea that like young people like Zomers and millennial women were actually into, which is that like if, if a friend comes to you going through and they're going through a difficult time, you send them this template that somebody else even wrote for you and you just fill it in and say like, hi, I'm sorry to hear that you're going through that. I'm dealing with my own problems and you should see a therapist. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing, which is fair enough. You know, it's fair. You know, not everybody is capable or in a position to deal with other people's problems. Right now, I wouldn't want to deal with somebody else's problems. You know, a friend of mine was going through a relationship problem. And you know, it's funny how people, this is kind of a side note. I don't want to get into my friend's lives, but it's just, it's funny when you see that somebody is sucked into a certain pattern and they're so focused on like what's going on in the immediate, in the present, which is normally a good thing, but sometimes it also distracts you from the bigger picture. But you notice that sometimes people, like they're so distracted of what's immediately going on, the immediate problems, they don't see that it's part of a larger pattern. And this person, and I'm, I'm going to be as vague as possible here out of respect for everybody involved, but it's like this person's been involved in this, this thing. It's going, going back like a year, year and a half. It's just been this like recurring issue of the same problems over and over again, and they're significant. And each time they come up, I can tell that this person's trying to deal with the current issue. Like it's always about resolving the current issue which in some cases is the right thing to do. But there's clearly like this, this larger pattern. But, you know, unfortunately, I, I'm just not really in a position to, to deal with that stuff right now. Like, you know, I like to be a friend who people can come to with their problems, but I certainly would never send somebody a template. I understand why somebody would come up with a template like that. But it's really insulting to actually use that. Like, as I've said before, I'm uncomfortable with even letting autocorrect change my words when I'm sending them to friends. Like, I don't even like to use autocorrect. And sometimes, you know, with certain people, I don't know why it's these specific people. It's not even based on my closeness to them necessarily. But there's certain people who if I'm sending a message to them, if I spell something wrong and it autocorrects, I go back and I retype the whole word. I don't just let autocorrect change it for whatever reason. 
I know it sounds neurotic and crazy, but for some reason, it's like there's certain people where I'm like, I don't want the robot to talk for me. Even though it knows what I meant, I'm going to retype it so that it's coming from me. So you can imagine how I feel about sending someone a freaking form letter, a template, especially when they're in a time of need. But that's the reality is like, those are the same sort of people, though, the same sort of people who will send you a template that they got off of Tumblr that says like, I am going through my own problems, so I can't deal with your emotional labor. That's the same sort of person who, like, when Robin Williams killed himself, they were posting on social media, if you ever need somebody to talk to, it's me. It's like that's the same person who will send you a a template, you know, a totally totally inhuman template, even though I understand the reason, because, you know, right now I wouldn't want to deal with somebody else's shit. But for that same reason, I don't want to force anybody else to deal with mine. It's funny, though, you know, just talking about suicide. It's funny just talking about suicide is because, you know, you even mention it. You even you even talk about it at all. And people get, you know, uncomfortable. And I understand why. But it's interesting how you can't really do that. You know how, you know, just even just what I said a minute ago, which is that like, I'm thinking a lot about suicide. I don't feel suicidal. I wouldn't even call it suicidal ideation. I actually have very strong motivators. I have a very, a very strong, you know, spiritual opposition to doing that. And I also have in my heart, uh, you know, very strong motivators to not do that as well. Like, so it's like, I feel like I, I'm, I'm very comfortable talking about it for that reason. Cause it's like, it's on my brain, but, uh, I don't know. It's, it's not something I'm threatening to do. And it, and that, that should be the time to talk about it. Right. Like that should be the time to talk about it. Not when you're threatening to do it, not when you're actually feeling the compulsion to do it, but just when you're kind of entertaining the thought that seems like the best time to talk about it. It shouldn't be when it's not on your mind at all. You shouldn't force yourself to think about it when it's not on your mind. Um, I think the best time to talk about it is when you're just kind of going going over the idea in your brain. So that's where I'm coming from on it. But someone would even misinterpret that. And that's exactly it. I mean, I don't know. Uh, we're just, you know, it's, it's just a very strange time because... I keep hearing gunshots nearby. I don't know if you could hear that on here. I heard one about 10 minutes ago. And it's distinctly a gunshot. I've learned the difference. It's not firecrackers. It's not a... Uh, it's not a car backfiring. I know what a gunshot sounds like. And it's weird. I heard one about 10 minutes ago. And now I just heard two very quickly. I mean, that kind of plays into it. You know, because it's it's... Things feel very, uh, there's been a lot of assaults around here. I may have mentioned it. I'm hearing about it all over the place. You know, I have a friend I talk to. And and the thing is, I'm not alone in feeling this way. I I heard from a friend who, I didn't even know he was living in New York. But he had moved to New York at some point. Last time I talked to him, I don't know where he was living, but he moved to New York. And he was saying he's just sick. Like he's having physical, real physical sickness. I mean, it sounded psychosomatic to me. 
I hate when people say that to me. Oh, your very real symptoms are psychosomatic. But what he was saying sounded almost psychosomatic. Like it sounds like New York City is making him sick. And I know New York, I've heard this from multiple people, is a very violent place right now. Someone will be defensive and say, no, it's not. No, no, it's not. I don't know. It sounds like it is. Sounds like it's more violent than it was. Um, but you know, even just here, even though this is a very safe area, I don't feel entirely safe around here right now. You know, Olympia is a very safe city overall, but it just it doesn't feel safe. It's like there have been two assaults at the grocery store I go to in the last month, like a month and a half. There are two assaults. There's always cops down the street like it's just it's, it seems like a time and you know somebody who lives in the big city would be like it's just this is just life in the city that's just what it's like to be in a city man oh you're not tough you're not, you know i'm not sitting there trembling but when you live in an area where that it's not normal and you start to notice it intensifying you're just like huh and then you hear random gunshots not very far away definitely sounded like a handgun i don't know it just plays into this dark climate we're in and this is why I'm not doing many shows, because I'll just end up talking about this. <laughs> I'll just kind of go into this stuff, because it's just like, there's gunshots down the street. There's assaults going on at the grocery store. Can you believe the state of the world? You know, I'll go into that stuff. But um, I don't know. I, I want to shift gears here. It's not, I don't have much more to say about suicide, dark night of the soul, only the fact that that's where I'm at. And this isn't confessional. Oh, I'm, I'm going sh- to be vulnerable. You like it when I'm vulnerable? No, this isn't vulnerability. It just, it's just a talk, man. And that's the problem. Is like if you talk about these subjects, people are like, oh, it, it, we're, are we being vulnerable now? Are, oh, oh we're, we're being vulnerable right now? Like I had a girl tell me once about something I'd said. She was like, I just want to say, I thought it was really cool that you were willing to be so vulnerable. And I was just like, oh, you ruined it. You ruined it. I know you're well-meaning, but that actually, that's why people don't want to talk about real shit. The reason why people don't want to talk about real shit is because someone ruins the moment by going, oh, we're being vulnerable. Congratulations on being vulnerable. This isn't about vulnerability or some shit. Just talking about how things are. But uh, anyway, you know, going back to just podcasts and things like that, it's it's kind of a way of taking the temperature, you know, and gas prices, you know, I've mentioned that before too. Gas prices are going up again, <laughs> which as I've said before, that's kind of my gauge as to, you know, how tense people are. Because if every time you go get gas, you're paying a little more money and you have to drive a car to go to all the places you need to go to, that plays into this tension, but I also, think, I also think it's like separate from the practical tension of just being upset about gas prices and, you know, all of that. I, th- I think it's also just, I, I, I see it as this weird sort of temperature gauge for, you know, where people's minds are at. Because it's just something that you notice going up. It's rising. And it was a big deal. Oh, they lowered gas prices by 20 cents. And that lasted a month. You know, it's just a good way of gauging things, but 
you know, when, and the thing is about just to talk a little more about how I'm feeling. I don't, I don't feel sad. I don't feel angry. I don't feel. Uh, I don't really have any negative emotion at all at the moment. That's what's interesting about this is is things feel very dark and grim to me right now. But I don't have any actual negative emotion about any of it. I feel dissociated. I feel completely dissociated from people and everything, virtually everything. You know, you can feel the roots of resentment when this is going on. More gunshots. I wonder what's up with that. But, uh, hopefully someone's just shooting in the woods or something. But, uh, anyway, you know, you can feel the roots of resentment because, you know, some of the people I know who are chronically depressed or, or just have shit going on in their lives all the time, they're very resentful. Like they come to resent the people in their life. And that's common. You know, it's, it's what I've said many times on here, which is that misery doesn't love company. Misery hates company, but it invites it in anyway. And then when company leaves and more company comes, misery complains about the last company it had. You know, misery doesn't love company. It hates it, but it invites it in anyway. I believe that. I truly believe that. And you see that with people, though, who are chronically miserable. They come to resent everybody in their lives or certainly the people closest to them, their family, their closest friends. Familiarity breeds contempt as it is. You know, the people who you see the most of, well, that says it all. You see the most of them, so you're going to see the good and the bad. And if you're not feeling well, your negativity bias is that much stronger. And I, I see that everywhere, man. Man. Miles and I were talking about when people say man. I do it all the time, but... Dude, whoa, man. Now I'm really self... Because we had that conversation, I'm very self-conscious of when I do it. But, uh, you know, you can just see... Uh, you know. The way that negativity bias when someone's in a miserable place, the way it just expands and it's all they see and it, it's directed especially at people they know, you know, where it's like, oh, this person's always doing this. Oh, my God. And you see that when people live very isolated lives together. Like a couple who is who lives in isolation together. I imagine this happened a lot during lockdown. But uh, you know, when a when a weird old couple lives in isolation together, like they just bicker all the time. It's for that same reason. Like they love each other, but they just they resent each other. And so the, where I'm at right now is like I can feel the roots of that resentment. Like when I think about certain people who I love, you know, these are people I love. I can feel like the roots of that feeling of resentment. Like, oh, why isn't, why isn't that person done this? Why is that person so cold in my time of need? <laughs> you know, I think about things like that. Or, or why is this person only concerned with this? Because kind of what I was getting at a minute ago is like, when you're feeling this way, a lot of, a lot of other people's concerns seem like burdens to you. And a good example of that, I mean, I, I've had a creative obligation 
that I haven't fulfilled for about the last year. It's been a full year now since it's been on my shoulders. And when I was ready to do it, it wasn't ready for me. And I just don't have that fire in me. And I'm someone, you know, creativity, I used to be more like a, the tortoise where I, I used to be able just to sit there and chip away all the time. I would just sit there and chip away at things creatively. Sometimes you have these nice, uh, you know, what they call flow states where you get a lot done. You're particularly inspired. But I used to just sit there and I used to, every night I could just chip away at something. Just make gradual process, progress. You know, in recent years, I really don't do that. I really can't force myself to do that. The idea of just like sitting down and chipping away at something all the time, just that methodical approach just it doesn't do it for me. And I think part of that is too, is just like when you're doing that when you're younger, you know, you're kind of developing skills. Like I think about drawing and, uh, you know, part of that I think was just developing the skills to do that. Like you're sitting there and you're, me- you're doing it methodically all the time but you're developing those skills too. And then you kind of reach either a plateau or a resting place where you no longer, not that you're no longer progressing or moving in a, in a certain direction, but it's just like you've reached a point where you feel like you're capable. And so you don't need like, like that methodical chipping away is no longer this, this kind of training and you can just do the thing that you want to do. And I found that it makes me want to do it less. You know, it becomes less satisfying. And as a result, like I can really only do things and not that I have any creative block or anything, but I can really only do things during these, when the fire is going and that doesn't come all the time and it's hard to fake that or mimic it. And I, I wouldn't want to either. And I know this all sounds like pretentious artist bullshit, but it's just a fact. But I know people who have kept on doing that. Like I know people who like they found something that works for them and they're good at it. And they'll just keep doing that over and over again forever. Like they can't understand not doing that forever. And that's difficult for me. You know, that's difficult for me for sure, where it's like, I don't see the value in just doing the same thing over and over again forever. Especially, you know, now that I feel like we've hit this uh, kind of cultural dead end. I mean, definitely a subcultural dead end where it doesn't seem like there are new interesting subcultural ideas coming out, at least in music and art and that kind of thing. It just, you know, maybe some of that has branched out into new technology. I mean, when I had this conversation with my friend Jason a couple years ago, he, he commented like, maybe, maybe we're just old, you know, maybe we are just, we've just reached that point. And I think that's a valid point. Because he was saying, you know, maybe musically that's happening in electronic music or hip hop. But even look at those. I would give a little bit of pushback. I think he's right in many ways. But I would even give a little bit of pushback to that and say, what are they doing, though? Like electronic music and hip hop, you know, it seems like those are old now, too. Like people are just milking those and dumbing those down. I mean, that's my opinion. And I don't know a lot about those things, but it's not like we're talking about brand new things that are popping out. And maybe somebody would say that exists, but um, all I see is Minecraft. What I see is this digital realm. And maybe that's 
what people want. I don't know, but it's like in terms of, you know, creativity, I don't know. I think about my friend who, uh, is a writer and you, know, he's very much inspired by old authors and he's years ago. I mean, he's a good example of like, he's somebody who for, you know, for many years, he was just chipping away methodically at his writing and improving. Like I saw his improvement, like things he wrote when he was young. I remember reading them and being like, Oh, you know, I want to, I want to encourage my friend, but I also don't really like this. And then it's amazing when you, when you have that take on somebody's work and then you see them improve, like you see him get good at what he's doing. And that was, it was very cool to see, but it's also, you know, he's, he's also inspired by a different time and there's not really a place for people like him today. Like there's not really a place to be that author, that fiction writer, that fiction author. Yeah. People still read fiction. It still gets published, but it's a much different world for that. And that's how I feel about some of the creativity I've been involved in. You know, even think about like drawing, drawing. And it's like most visual artwork, like even if you draw it with pen, it's going to get scanned in and seen on a computer. Yeah, people still have fine art. There are still galleries. I'm very, that's very foreign to me. But it's like, like everything gets channeled in through the internet. You know, everything gets, that's how everything gets projected. You know, it's just, it's just how it is. And, uh, and things don't even look the same or feel the same. I mean, even if you have something pressed on vinyl, it doesn't look and feel the same as vinyl from even 20, 30, especially 40 years ago. It just doesn't have that same feel. Like you can tell that the artwork is, is digitally printed. It doesn't sound the same. The vinyl pressing doesn't sound as good. And I'm not saying that in a, you know some some ultra negative way. It's just kind of a fact is that it it usually doesn't feel as good. It's true for even reissues. Like when something old is reissued on vinyl today, it might look good, it might sound good, but it doesn't feel the way records from the past felt. It doesn't sound the way they sounded. Things have just changed. You know, it's it even though it's on the same format, it feels like it's mimicking that. Like when I buy a new book, it feels digital. Like even though I'm holding it in my hands, if it's a book that's been published in the last 10, 15, 20 years, especially in the last 10 years, like you can, when you're reading the book, you can, you can practically feel that they used a digital printer to print the pages. It just has that look and feel to it. It's not like it ruins it, but it's just, you know, so much, so many things are tactile and it just feels that way. And I don't think it's pretentious to point that out. It's just, that it's even if you're trying to do the same things that people did in the past, they feel different. They are different. And I think you have to just acknowledge that. You know, you have to acknowledge that that you really can't just relive. You can't uh, you can't LARP. You know, I know everybody everybody uses that phrase these days. Oh, they just LARPing. But that's kind of what it feels like when you keep doing something that people of the past did. 
you know, you have to come to terms with modernity. And I think it's good to keep certain traditions alive. Like, I think it's a great thing that people have kept the tradition of pressing vinyl, releasing tapes, CDs. I think it's great that people have kept that tradition alive, and I've participated in it. Because it doesn't feel the same to do things digitally. I've tried releasing music digitally before. It doesn't feel like you released it. It doesn't feel like it's done. So I'm a proponent of the analog medium. But even when things are still analog, you can feel the digital influence on them. It's just something you have to accept. Uh... It's funny though, like, like thinking about social media, and I play devil's advocate a lot with social media. I've been doing it on here for years. I think I've made all my points about that, where it very much is a choose your own adventure game. Where if it's a horribly negative experience for you, and it's a source of huge resentment, being exposed to that many people you know and don't know, seeing their little mental ticks, their psychological ticks just seeing their lives all the time or seeing what they're trying to present or even if they're presenting their authentic selves in their life their, their authentic self their vulnerable authentic self and even if they're presenting all that and you like them and everything simply being exposed to it too much will will make you roll your eyes like even if you love somebody's pets or their children, <laughs> even if you love their children. Sometimes when you just see pictures of, of someone's kid all the time, you kind of go, oh, it's another picture of the kid. Oh, oh, it's another picture of their kid. Oh, my God. You know, you it, it breeds resentment in the same way that living with someone breeds resentment. Even though you're choosing to look at this, you will resent people. You will see people on social media or, and resent them, even if you love them. Or even if you think they're cool, it's just a byproduct of it. So you have to stop yourself. You have to feel the roots of that and stop yourself from feeling that way. And, and you know, and it's not that I disagree with all of these widespread criticisms of that social media is, you know, breeding division, that the companies themselves are encouraging that, that it's created a social disaster for us. I think that's all valid and true. But a lot of that has to do with uh, the choose-your-own-adventure side of it. Yeah, algorithms are directing people a certain way. But if algorithms are controlling your brain, if your brain is being controlled by algorithms, if you're feeling politically violent because social media algorithms have led you down a rabbit hole where you're only exposed to things that make you feel hatred and anger toward people who disagree with you, you're not exercising your brain enough as it is because you should be able to recognize that when it's happening. I guess it's hard to do. Um, but even though all that happens, even though that's all true, it's like it is a choose your own adventure novel and you do have a great deal of free will when it comes to what you're exposed to and what you seek out. You know, you have to have a certain amount of discipline with that stuff. But uh, even though I've been kind of a devil's advocate for social media in that, Hey, you know, there's a lot of good to it. Like I'm able to stay connected even just in a peripheral way with all kinds of people who I probably wouldn't have a connection with otherwise. Like there are people I might know, there are people I might have had some level of contact with over the years. But it's an if I need to get a hold of them, 
or if they want to know what I'm up to, or they, I want to know what they're up to. It's a great way to find that out. And I am interested in what people are up to. Or if I have to get a hold of somebody, it's nice to know that I don't have to track down their email address and hope that it's the same one they've always used. I don't have to wonder if they got a new phone number. I can just contact them that way. So I think that that's just on its own. It's, it has a very good practical use. But one thing I've found is like, I don't look at it anymore. You know, I, don't, I really don't even look at it. And that didn't come from a, it didn't come from me making some bold proclamation where like, I'm going to take a break from social media for two months. I'm going to, I'm going to get an electronic zapper. And if I check my phone, if I check social media too many times on my phone, it zaps me. If I check social media more than twice in a half hour, I have a shock collar that zaps me. Oh, I have an app that tells me the amount of screen time I've been using. You know, I, I, that stuff, I don't even think about that stuff. I don't even think about like the idea of like making some bold decision to not look at it as much. What I've found over the last like six months, just throughout 2021, is just like, I just have no desire to even look at it. You know, I'll go through a little, a little period where maybe I'll catch up or something, but I just think like, what am I going to see on there that's even interesting now? Like there was a point in time where I felt like if I looked at Facebook or I looked at Instagram, where I felt like I might see something interesting, but it kind of plays into what I've said about podcasts I listen to where people don't have much to talk about. People don't have much to present. Like if somebody has a family, it's like, oh, here's pictures of my kids going to school today. It's the first day of school. That's great. I, I feel no ill will toward people for that. Uh, my boredom doesn't come from a place of ill will. It's just simply like, oh yeah, we've reached a point where this is no longer interesting. It's not that it makes me angry at people. It's not that it, it gives me FOMO. All of those things that people say social media causes, like I don't feel those at all. It's simply like we've reached a point where I'm just like, it doesn't matter what the, the, the program is. It doesn't matter what the website is. I've just reached a point where I'm like, there's nothing that's going to interest me on there. Like people have already expressed themselves so much. It's not that I don't find anybody interesting. It's just that format seems to have exhausted itself. Like, what am I going to see when I look at that? What am I going to see that's even marginally interesting at this point? That's just where I'm at now. Um, like, I don't feel better because of it. You'll hear people say that. They'll be like, oh, I, de I deleted Twitter. I deleted Twitter and I, for a month. You would, I felt so much better. Oh, my God. I felt so much better. I don't feel better or worse for it. To me, it's, it's almost like, oh, I, I've watched that. I've watched that show from the first to last episode, I've watched the entire series so many times that I don't know what else I'm going to get out of it. And maybe once in a while, it's fun to throw it on, but that's kind of how it is. And, and that kind of plays into the point I'm making, which is that at some point we kind of came to see each other as entertainment with social media. It's like, we kind of, you know, I was talking about how a lot of people started thinking of themselves as a brand, not just people who are promoting a real company or a real product, or a service or their art, but even just regular human beings living their lives kind of started to think of themselves as this brand who was presenting something. 
And we started to see people that way in some ways. Like we go to everybody we've ever known as our source of entertainment. And your friends are a source of entertainment. If you have a good relationship with your family, they're a source of entertainment. That's all well, normal and good. But it has been a weird chapter in human life to see each other, just everybody you know who's connected to you online, which is probably a good amount of people. You know, for me, it's probably 200, 300 people at most. I know for some people it's thousands. But to see other people you know as entertainment and then to want to be entertaining or interesting yourselves, eventually that's going to run out. Eventually that's going to exhaust itself. And I think all of these things eventually go the way of Facebook, which is that it just becomes a place for older people to post photos of their grandkids, for people to post photos of their pets. But nobody goes to these things to get somebody's perspective anymore. I don't think anybody's interested in anybody else's ideas expressed that way. For a lot of people, it's just a way to stay connected, like I was saying, which is a very good purpose for it. It's also a way to promote what you're doing, to promote your business. But I don't even know that that's as effective now. You don't even know that promoting yourself, I don't know, mentioning my online store, you know, a friend of mine fortunately gave me a shout out in his, uh, he runs a mail order and gave me a shout out, which was helpful. I got a few orders through that, which is really nice. But, you know, where do you even promote these things anymore? You know, I guess on your own pages and stuff, but it's just, it used to be there were, there were a lot of different places you could go, like forums and things, but I, tr- I, I tried to find a couple forums that used to exist and they no longer exist. And I'm just like, huh, you know, it's, it's a weird time uh, where you're very limited as to where you can promote something that you're, that you have. But those are in these places where everybody's kind of promoting themselves, promoting what they do, and we're all kind of sick of that too. I don't know. It's just, it's a weird thought. It's a weird time. You know, it plays into what I, I mentioned a few weeks ago about how there's some guy that I don't even know. He's involved in some music that I used to be involved in. I've never had any communication with him, but he's one of those guys who I think just adds everybody so that he can promote himself. And, uh, you know, he's this guy where, like, he's the only person this even happens with anymore, but it seems like every few months I get these notifications, like, so-and-so wants you to like his new Facebook page where he's promoting some record label he's running, he's promoting some new project he's doing, He's, he'll make them for his new albums and things. And it's just like, who's even following this shit anymore? And I don't, even, I don't even mean this as a personal dig on this guy in particular. It's just simply like, who is even following things they like on Facebook so that they can keep tabs on them? You know, who's even paying attention to that? Who's creating new Facebook pages for their business? Like sometimes, this is like really the only time, like if I'm doing mafia research... I'll sometimes look up a business that's owned by a mafia member and without fail, some Facebook business page for it will pop up. And it's just like, it's a restaurant and they'll post like a photo of food. And there's like one, like, like a relative of theirs is like, yummy, yummy. And, uh, it's just like, how many people are really paying attention to that anymore? I feel like we exhausted that. 
Is there Jordan Peterson was on Rogan the other day. And, you know, I'm a Jordan Peterson fan, as I've said before. And I think back, you know, I first became aware of him right around the time he first became known to the public. But it wasn't his, it wasn't the controversy that made me interested in him. I've never cared at all about the controversy. Um, it, it was actually like I heard something he said and I was like, that's really interesting. Like what he just said is very interesting. I'm going to look into this guy more. And I remember seeing his second appearance on Rogan live as it happened. This is probably 2016, I would guess. I'd seen the previous appearance he did, and I'd been paying attention to him for a while. But I saw the second appearance he did on Rogan, and it was incredible. Like, he was so on point. Rogan was so engaged. It was really the, the, you know, aside from some of his uh, lectures from the past, like around 2017, when he was doing his biblical lectures and stuff, those were very interesting wasn't as into the self-help tour. I saw some of the videos he did when he was promoting his book and it came across more like just your typical self-help speaker, a little more interesting than that. There was still good material in there, but it was, it it wasn't as good as when he was just going off. Um, but the second time he was on Rogan, I had, that was when Rogan would be live. You would be watching it live as it happened. So this this is around 2016 and it really felt like you were watching something significant. And Rogan closed out the show. He's like, I think this is the best podcast I've ever done. And that was the feeling I had afterward, too. Like, as that ended, I, I was even thinking that to myself. I was like, I just witnessed something incredible. There was some real, like, synergy going on, as they say. There was just it's something. It felt, the fact that I was watching it live, it just seemed to have this momentum to it. And so I was really looking forward to uh, to this this latest appearance, and I ended up like seeing it later that night, and it was like four hours long, and I was very excited. I was just like, "Man, four hours!" And I watched it, and it was good. You know, it was good. But it, what, what I noticed about it is it was like extremely chaotic. Like Rogan was also being he was he was giving a lot of pushback, almost like that sort of thing where if you're hanging out with somebody and they're in a bad mood, how they kind of push back on every single thing you say like like if somebody's just if they haven't eaten like if somebody hasn't eaten how you can say to them like oh you know it's really great that it's sunny out today and you'll be like yeah well we need the rain but if it was raining and you were like oh you know hey i'm glad it's raining we've needed it they'd go be better if it was sunny i'm sick of the rain you know sometimes you'll and i'll do that to people I do that to people. If I'm in a bad mood, I know to keep myself away from people because I will be that person. I will contradict everything they say. I will push back. It's not a good time to have a conversation. And so Rogan kind of had that vibe. But Jordan Peterson, it just seemed like he was just, it seemed like he was, it's almost like when someone's over eager to talk and so they don't even know where to begin and they just go off. I mean, I do that every time I do this show, but, but it just, it was almost like he, he was exploding with different talking points. And I think it was good. It wasn't like anything about it was bad. He kind of went off on some climate change stuff. I don't mean for this to be an analysis of a Joe Rogan episode, but, uh, or Jordan Peterson, but you know, he, he's gotten very into the, to pushing back on climate change and I think he's coming from a similar place as I am, which is a, a very occult has developed 
just like humanity has always had this eschatological fantasy, just like we've always developed eschatological apocalyptic fantasies, it doesn't seem to matter what our belief system is. It doesn't seem to matter what part of the world we're in. It's like how every, every group of ancient people has an apocalyptic eschatological prophecy. And sometimes the, the reasoning for it is different. You know, obviously a spiritual eschaton is different than climate apocalypse, but it's still a belief system that has developed this apocalyptic fantasy or prophecy. And it often involves compelling you to do something to either prevent it or to... Um, achieve salvation when it comes. And I think Jordan Peterson's pushback on climate change kind of comes from that place. I think there's there's something about the conversation that's going on about climate change and has been going on for years that makes people like me, that makes many people say, I can't just go along with that. It's not that I even disagree with the science. It's not that I even deny something is going on, and maybe some of the explanations they have for it are valid. It doesn't even come from that place for me. It just comes from the fact that I don't like the, the cult-like thinking that has developed around this. And I don't like to see the way people kind of get off on projecting that. That's a big part of it for me. And I think he's probably coming from the same place on that, but he's gotten more into counteracting it with you know his own take on the science, which I have no interest in. That's the same for me and Coronivi. Like I would never, and I, and I, to my credit, you know, despite all the bullshit I do say to my credit, you know, I've never gotten into the, like trying to counteract Coronivi facts with other facts. You know, my take on Coronivi is just like, I'm not invested enough in it one way or the other. I'm not invested in it one way or the other, which is why I've just done the bare minimum to get by. And when I see people get into that game of like, well, here's these facts, I'm glad people are doing that. It, it plays into what I've said before about like, sometimes somebody else having an opinion and expressing it gives you the freedom to not have to say it. Because I've been in situations where somebody is not saying something that needs to be said even just as an exercise. And that makes me feel like I need to be the one to say it because nobody is saying it. But there are a lot of other things where other people are saying them. And I'm like, whoo, phew. I don't have to say it now. Like if nobody else was giving any fact-based or whatever it is, let's even just get away from the word fact. You know, if nobody else was making an argument against the coronavirus narrative, I might feel the need to, to engage in that. Fortunately, I don't feel like I have to. And I don't really agree or disagree to any, to any significant degree with either side. I'm just kind of like, this is a fucking wild time. This is a wild world to live in. I'm not really buying into in what anybody's saying. I really don't trust anybody in that regard. Um, but I'm glad that people are pushing back. And I support that because I think they should be able to. I think this should be a dance. 
even if one side is wrong or more wrong than the other side, these things should be a dance. We should never go all in on one idea. When the government tells us we have to do things a certain way, we should never go all in on that. And some people should be allowed to fight that because that actually makes everybody stronger if they do it in good faith, you know, and, and Jordan Peterson is somebody who does this, which I think is why he's pushing back on climate change. I think he recognizes that certain people have gone all in on one narrative about climate change, and they've developed a very cult-like framework for it. They would never say that because science, saying that you're drawing from science seems to make people feel like they're not participating in a cult. Meanwhile, science has very much developed its own cult-like form of thinking. And they even talk about it that way. You know, they even talk about science using very cult-like phrasing. Trust the science. You know, it's very cult-like. Even if you do trust science, whatever that means, does that mean you trust animal testing? Does that mean you trust horrible experiments that were done on human beings? Like, I mean, what, where does your trust begin and end? But even if you do overall have a certain level of faith and you believe that the scientific process benefits humanity more than it hurts, you don't necessarily have to participate it, participate in it in the cult-like way that is developed around it. And so I imagine someone like him is probably responding to that same, something in your gut says, I don't like the way they're going about this. I don't like the way this is being framed. For me personally, though, I think that I get around that. I think I, I get some sort of... Uh, I come to terms with it by saying, oh, there's this long-term ancient trend within our species to have some sort of apocalyptic prophecy. And to people who see that apocalypse happening, everything is evidence of it. You know, if you believe in the Kali Yuga and you look around and you see the state of society, you will see evidence of the Kali Yuga. You absolutely will. I mean, even just what I'm talking about, like hearing gunshots a minute ago, seeing how mean people are to each other, seeing the way people's hearts have hardened over the last couple of years, seeing the way our culture has degenerated over the last number of decades, that will all be evidence of the Kali Yuga to you if you believe in something like the Kali Yuga. You know, seeing environmental changes, those will all become part of this climate change scenario if that's what you believe in. And you know what? Maybe all of these things are a part of that thing. Maybe culture does, does degenerate as we lead up to some sort of apocalypse. You know, maybe every natural disaster that occurs is a symptom of climate change. But you can see where people are seeking that too. Because that idea is in their head, they are seeking it. And that deserves some pushback. That deserves a dance, if anything does. We should never go all in on that. And if somebody says that resisting the urge to go all in is dangerous or contributing to the problem even more, well, you know not to trust them. 
You know, as I've said before, I live a life that is better for the environment than a lot of people. Not everybody. I'm not a hippie. I don't live the most organic lifestyle. I don't think my so-called carbon footprint is one of the worst. But that said, the simple fact that I might say, hmm, you know, climate change, it seems like yet another apocalyptic fantasy that humans have developed, another eschatological prophecy that we've developed in a long line of them. Someone would immediately say, I'm somehow contributing to climate change because I don't necessarily buy into the way the narrative has been crafted. Even though my actual lifestyle is probably better for the environment than a lot of people, maybe even better than a lot of the people who are pushing that narrative, I would say it probably is. I would say my lifestyle is probably better for the environment than many people who are all in on the climate change narrative. Not all of them. But I would say I'm probably living, you know, a little bit of a cleaner lifestyle than a lot of them. I don't fly on planes very much, for starters. There's a lot of people who spend a lot of time on airplanes. Um, I don't drive unnecessarily. If I can walk somewhere, I do. But uh, the simple fact that I might say, huh, you know, it certainly seems like yet another apocalyptic scenario. And I'm not going to promote this. I'm not going to be somebody who's lecturing other people on their carbon footprint or trying to remind people of climate change every time anything and everything happens that can be contextualized that way. I might even give a little pushback on it. Yet my lifestyle is actually better for the environment than many people's. So where does that place me? I don't know. And that's exactly the way I want it. I don't want to be placed. But it's very much about faith. You know, you could live a lifestyle that's actually more destructive for, uh, against the environment than mine is. But if you're constantly promoting climate change, if you're constantly reminding people of it, if every time something happens that can be pulled into the climate change narrative, someone else who believes in that will say, you're a good one. You're a good one. You're a true, you're a fellow believer. You know, it's, it's a big part of all this is we are seeking fellow believers, but it doesn't actually matter what that person is doing in many cases. You know, we will take their words as evidence of their deeds. You know, it's, it plays into what I've said about feminism before, which is that these liberal friends I used to hang out with used to give me a lot of grief. You know, it didn't come up all the time, but there was one conversation that was fairly intense. It wasn't angry, but it was fairly intense where like a couple of them... We we're all sitting at a table at a bar and a couple of them were like, why don't you just call yourself a feminist? Cause you already are one. I said, huh? You know, well, I'm not one, you know, I've, I've, I've talked about this before, but it was just this weird conversation because they were like, well, you don't even know you're one, but you are. And it's like, I don't want to put myself in that position. Cause the second I call myself a feminist, when you find out that some of my beliefs actually don't line up with the ever changing definition of feminism, well, then you're going to call me, 
you know, a liar or a false believer or something, you're, you're going to, you're going to condemn me for calling myself, myself something I'm not. So I would much rather be in a position where like you think that I treat women well, and I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back, but I would much rather be in a position where you think that I treat women well and with respect, but for whatever reason, don't like that. I I don't consider myself a feminist. I would much rather be, doing deeds that you think are overall beneficial to our society without calling myself something than to call myself something and uh, not hold all the opinions and not do all the deeds that you think are in line. You know know what I'm saying? Getting kind of convoluted here, but you know, it's just, if you're doing the right thing, nothing else should matter. But so much of what we do is communicating to other people that we're doing the right thing And I think that plays into, too, the boredom of social media, where there was less of that in years past. Over the last couple of years, social media has been one of the key ways that we signal to each other that we are doing the right thing, even if we're not. Even if we're not doing what we say we're doing, it's become one of the ways that we tell other people we're doing that or telling other people we believe that. And so that's given it this layer of dishonesty. Because that was not as common a decade ago. Some people were doing it, but they were doing it significantly less. Relatively few people were doing that. And when they did do it, it didn't mean as much. Like when someone did virtue signal, as they call it, on social media 10 years ago, it didn't mean as much. You'd just be like, oh, I either agree or disagree, or oh, it's funny they're saying that. Oh, they have that opinion. But social media became the medium. Social media became the medium to let people know what you believe. And that became especially true in the last couple years. This is where we go to let people know what we believe. It also became a place that we go to, I mean, talking about not feeling well lately, the last thing in the world I would ever imagine doing, I mean, I'm talking about it here because this is, I can, I can elaborate and I can put my voice to it, but uh, the last thing in the world I could ever imagine doing at this point would be to go to social media and be like, I'm not feeling good. I'm not feeling good. Not that it's wrong to do that. Not if you if that's how you if that's where you need to go to get support. Go there. If that's what's going to keep you alive, if that's what's going to keep you going, do that. But I don't know that it's that beneficial. And the people I know who do that seem to get addicted to it. Like there's someone I know who I know very well who I believe has gotten addicted to that. At some point, a number of years back they started using social media to express victimhood and uh, just personal issues. And I don't think it ever satisfied that. I mean, I think some of it was kind of manufactured to begin with, but I don't think it ever satisfied that craving they have for attention. I don't think it's ever enough. 
I don't think there's ever any one comment. I don't think there's any number of likes that ever satisfies that craving. It's like a hungry ghost where they can put it in their mouth, but their throat is too thin for the food to actually go down. So their stomach never actually receives it. That's kind of the impression I have. And it's a way to get attention. You know, and unfortunately, when we're not doing well, sometimes we think attention will help us. And maybe for some people it does. But I know personally, whenever I've gotten attention for something, when I'm not doing well, it doesn't actually help me. Just getting attention alone doesn't help me. But anyway, I don't know, you know, it's just, uh, it just, again, I, I come back to the fact that this seems like one of the more uninteresting times that I can remember. And maybe part of that's the high of many interesting things happening, you know, for two straight years, for me personally, two years and a month and a half, you know, just those events like my mom dying, which is interesting. Someone would be like, what? How could that not be? That's, one, that's the most interesting thing that's ever happened to me. Sad. It's a loss. The person I love more than anything died. Isn't that freaking interesting, man? <laughs> How could that not be interesting? It's one of the most interesting things I've ever, I could ever imagine. It, I, I would actually say it's the most interesting thing that has ever happened to me. How could it not be? But, uh, you know, to follow that up with coronavirus two months later, interesting. Wow, I'm really interested by this. The BLM protests and riots, interesting. Because <laughs> my interest isn't based on good or bad or whether I like it or don't like it or in between or somewhere else, you know, interesting, interesting, very, very interesting, you know, I'm getting silly here, but, you know, my mom dying, very interesting, coronavirus, very interesting, BLM, very interesting, election, interesting, January 6th, interesting, last year was a little less interesting, but, oh, vaccine, arguments over the vaccine, kind of figuring out where we're going. Interesting. 2022. Oh, not interesting. It's like I'm so used to being high off of all those things that now I'm just like, oh, you know, things aren't as interesting. So all there is to do, all there really is to do right now, it seems like is reflect, talk about current events. And maybe my situation is made a little more difficult by the fact that like, there's nothing I really want to do out in the world. Like, even though you can do more things now than you could do a year ago or a year and a half ago, there's not a lot that I want to do. And maybe this is just me being, you know, a curmudgeon or something, but it's like, I wasn't doing a lot before all this. Like, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, dude, I can't wait for Coronavirus to be over so I can go to concerts, man. Dude, I can't wait to go to, go to concerts again. Dude, I can't wait to go out to eat, man. Can't wait to go out to a bar and, and to stay out until 2 a.m., dude. And that's all well and good if you do that. I have no, you know, I used to do all those things. But I don't do those things anymore. Like, there's nothing actually out there in the world that I want to go do. And it's not a bad thing at all. 
Um, you know, I haven't been to a restaurant in over two years, but I don't believe in restaurants. Restaurants are fun. Like if you're out with your friends and your family and like, I love a good meal. I love that experience of being out with people. It's an occasion, but I don't really believe in restaurants. As I've said before, I've gone into this before on here, but what's weird about restaurants is you're, you're simulating what it is to be a Lord. You have this servant who comes to you and people treat, like I'm always embarrassed. Even in the best of circumstances, I'm always a little bit embarrassed by the fact that there's a waiter coming to my table and they're having to pretend to be gracious and nice and engaging to satisfy me. Otherwise, my experience isn't as good. I'm very well aware of the fact that when I'm sitting at a restaurant, I'm role-playing as a lord. And that's an experience nobody had in the past, except for nobles. You know, a century, two centuries ago, in the Middle Ages, the average citizen, the average person, could never fathom the idea of sitting at a table and having a servant come to them just for the night, just for a couple hours. It was something that only the lords experienced. It was something that only the nobility experienced. So the idea of like sitting at a table, you're, you're pretending, you're basically simulating an experience that the average person didn't have in years past. And you can see where that creates something in people where like that makes people feel like they're a lord, where they start talking down to their waiter. They belittle them. They start expecting exceptional service. If their waiter isn't bubbly and nice, if, they, if somebody gets it wrong, yeah, they should correct it. If you're paying for it, they should correct your meal and not give you grief over their mistake. But you can see where some people use that as an opportunity to belittle the server, to belittle the establishment, and then not only that, but they get online about it. They tell their friends, oh, don't go there. Bad service. Oh, they got my thing wrong. Oh, uh, I'm going to get online and review this place and give it a bad review. I'm going to give it a bad review. Because my little role-playing session as a lord reminded me that I'm not a lord and I have very little power. But uh, no, I'm not a monster though. Like if, if somebody takes me out to a restaurant, I enjoy it. You know, I'm, I'm a freak, but I can let that freak, uh, I, I, can, uh, I can keep that freak tame sometimes and enjoy what it is to go out to a restaurant with people you like and enjoy a good meal. Um. But just my default mode is that like, I, I just, I've never really felt comfortable or natural. And then for me too, it's like, I'm very conscious of other people. Like if I'm in a restaurant, this is where I get weird. But like, one of the things people like to do in restaurants is talk about people they know. When they're sitting down at a, at a table in a restaurant, for whatever reason, people start talking about other people they know, gossiping, sharing things about them. And if you live in the same town as those people, it's weird. Like you never know who else is in that restaurant. And so it's almost like you have to use code language. 
because I just don't like the idea of yapping at a restaurant and people overhearing it. You know, it's like, oh, you hear Cindy and Greg? You hear what, what happened with Cindy and Greg? Like, she cheated with his brother. It's like Cindy and Greg's friends might be at the next table. I don't know. I'm, I'm neurotic about that kind of thing. But I never completely feel like myself at restaurants. And I think part of that is because it is this role play session where I'm a lord. I will tell the servant what I want and they will bring it to me. But uh, you realize that that's an interesting thing about commerce and capitalism for that matter. And this isn't even necessarily a criticism of capitalism because I think it could be actually a compliment to it too. But it does allow people to simulate experiences they never otherwise would have had in earlier civilizations. You know, capitalism and restaurants as a, a very important part of the system, it allows people to experience what it was like to be a, a, a lord at a banquet hall with a servant coming to them. And that that servant has to do everything they can to satisfy you, to make sure that your experience is the premier experience. Same thing with like hotels. Like you think about hotels, which I've never talked about. For once, I'm talking about something I've never talked about. It's sort of similar with hotels. Like you're called a guest. This sounds like bad stand-up, but it kind of is. Which is like you're called a guest. Who who's your host? You're not a guest. You're paying them. You're not somebody's guest. You're a, you're basically a, a temporary tenant. You're paying rent. You're in a, a, an upscale boarding house. You're in a very clean boarding house for a couple nights. You're not a guest. There's no gracious host who's like, oh, you're, you're a guest. And we're going to give you the best room because we have a high opinion of you and love you. It's like you're going to this place. You're paying. You're overpaying to rent a room for a few days or a week. But you're simulating what it is to be the guest of a Lord. Like you're going to this big building, even if it's not expensive and fancy hotels, of course, try to look that way. You know, even a cheap hotel will get fake fancy decor because they want to give you that experience. It's like why when you go into a hotel room, even if it's relatively cheap, I mean, there are exceptions, there are total dives. But the reason why, like when you go to a motel or a hotel, you go in the room, it's like they get things that look nice, even if they're not. And it's the idea is that it, you're simulating what it was like to be the guest at a palace, this big place, and there's a, you know, it, it's fancy and you know, so it's just funny and it's practical. Like, I mean, a restaurant is practical too. Like you need food and you enjoy good food. When you, sometimes you travel and you need places to stay, you want them to be clean and nice. But it's funny to me how it's still like, it's still kind of the way capitalism like allows you to simulate experiences that people never otherwise would have had. Like, again, going back to civilization's past, if you were traveling and needed to stay somewhere, there were like these inns. 
and they were often dirty. It's like, you know, it was not a nice experience necessarily. And, uh, or you slept in a stable or something, you know, but, uh, capitalism has allowed us to pretend that we are staying at some palatial estate and the grounds are often made to look that way. Like the grounds at a hotel are almost made to look like they're, you know, you're at some estate. There's a garden. There's a courtyard. And so you're, you're, you're basically simulating what it was like to be a guest at some lord's palace. At a restaurant, you're simulating what it's like to be a lord commanding a servant in a banquet hall. And so it's interesting that capitalism gives us those experiences. Like you pay a small fee, a relatively small fee, sometimes you pay a lot, to basically get an experience that people in your position in years past, in civilizations past, never would have gotten to experience. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I know this could come across like I'm criticizing it, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it's kind of cool that we can experience some form of that. It's cool that we don't have to be from a noble family. It's cool that we don't have to be important. All you have to do is make a little bit of money and you can do that. It's really interesting. And maybe it's a good thing. Like I've said that about selfies. I've said that about selfies before where, you know, people come down on selfies like, oh my God, people are taking selfies. Oh my God. Oh my God. Who the fuck, dude, I hate the fucking selfies, dude. You know, people have that opinion on them and like, yeah, you know, it can be very vain if somebody's just taking selfies and sharing them with the world all the time. But it's also kind of amazing that the common person can just pull out this device that everybody has and have a portrait of themselves. That's another thing that only the nobility, that only the lords used to have. They would commission a painting. If you want a depiction of yourselves, you would commission a painting. Not everybody could do that. And over time, you know, even with photography coming about, with photography, it was like you had to be wealthy to have even a photograph of yourself. You'd have to pay this photographer. You'd wear very nice clothing. Your family would pose. It was a very involved process, and not everybody could do it. And over time, we've reached a point where everybody can have a portrait of themselves. And chances are they have countless portraits of themselves. They look cheap, but all of these things are a cheaper form of the original. You know, a selfie is going to be a cheaper version of a portrait from years past. You know, unless you're going to an incredibly expensive restaurant, you know, the restaurant experience is going to be a cheaper form of being the Lord's guest. A hotel is going to be a cheaper version of what it was to be the Lord's guest. The Lord's Guest. It's going to be the name of this episode. The Lord's Guest. We're all just the Lord's Guest here. But all of these things end up being a cheaper version of that, with some exceptions. But what's funny is only the wealthy can afford to have something that isn't cheap or that isn't a cheaper version of what it's trying to simulate. 
just kind of funny that like you actually have to basically be pseudo nobility and have a lot of disposable income in order to actually get something closer to the real thing. Everything else is just kind of a cheaper version of that. But anyway, what going, got, got me going on that is just, yeah, I haven't been to a restaurant for two years. And the thing is, I don't have a desire. Like lockdown wasn't a problem for me as far as like not getting to do things because there really wasn't that much that I wanted to do. And I don't say that to be a contrarian. Like I certainly wasn't somebody who was like, oh, I'm an introvert and I'm so excited that I just get to stay home and watch Netflix. You know, that wasn't me at all either. But in terms of like, feeling like I was being deprived of doing something. I didn't feel that at all. I didn't feel that I was being deprived of going to restaurants. I wanted restaurants to reopen so that people could make their living. It's not a good thing for the economy. But I also hate that I have to feel that way too. I hate that I have to think about that. Oh no, but this is what's going to be best for the economy. Like, why should I have to worry about that? But, uh, you know, I think that's part of it, though. I think that's part of my own just, uh, you know, my own dark night of the soul is that I haven't been and I'm really not looking forward to society again. And the fact that people are kind of going through the motions of society again. I mean, it feels like a pale imitation and people's hearts have hardened. I mean, I think that kind of plays into the way I'm feeling. Is uh, it, It's not that people have gotten tougher. Like the last two years, I don't feel like people have gotten more rugged and tougher. I think they've actually gotten the opposite. They feel more sensitive than ever. It's not like people who have been through hard times and they just turn into tough people, like someone who's been to prison or gone to war. It's not like people have that ruggedness to them, but their hearts have hardened in a certain way where they don't seem as concerned about other people. And I know a lot of nice people. It's not like I'm making a judgment about everybody I know or anything, but this is just sort of a general feeling is that people have gotten very self-interested. They've gotten very self-involved. They've been thinking about their own survival. You know, there's the story, uh, I'm trying to think of who said it. It might have been Viktor Frankl or one of those guys, but, uh, you know, about seeing the bread crust in the concentration camp in World War II, how I think he said that his father or somebody had just a bread crust and he was just thinking about how he wanted it. Like, even though they were all in a concentration camp and, you know, I don't remember if his father was killed or what the story was, he, he thought about that for the rest of his life, how in that moment, like when his, I think it was his father, it was one of his relatives, and they, and he was, they were emaciated. I mean, the reason he wanted it is because they were starving, and how he was only thinking about how he wanted to take that bread crust from him because they were, you know, so deprived and starving. It was like he was just thinking, he wasn't thinking about like how his father would want that bread crust how his father could benefit from eating that. It's like he was just in pure animal mode. Like, I want that. And now that haunted him. That feeling haunted him. 
And while we're not, you know, we're not in the Holocaust here, um, that's kind of like a, I, I kind of get that vibe. Like where people are very much like, they've been so focused on their own survival, even though they haven't been in that bad of circumstances in most cases, they have been kind of looking at each other like that person's got that bread crust. I want that. I want it. And I feel that way communicating with people. And maybe I'm that way too. Even though I've had it better than a lot of people. Even though the people I know have had it pretty good. I do feel like people kind of have that... Uh, I wouldn't even call it a greediness. But it's like that prior prioritization of the self that's like I have to worry about my own survival because that's been drilled into our heads whether that's a realistic thing or not the circumstances of, of the last couple of years have really drilled that way of thinking into our heads and I've talked about this before but the way that things shifted and I think you know one of one of the reasons social media has become so boring is because people were forced onto it and it was the main way that people were communicating with each other. Like when lockdown started, I was on Facebook way more than I'd been in years just because it was interesting. I was getting new information. I was hearing about how other people were doing, but there were a lot of people, whether it was truth or not, there were a lot of people who were like, we're all in this together. We're all doing this for each other. We're all doing, we're all doing things for each other, man. And it was interesting to see, and I think it happened around summer 2020 that I started to notice. Yeah, that was definitely when I noticed the shift of people's hearts kind of hardening. Where lines in the sand started getting drawn deeper. Because even though other people were pushing back on lockdown and some of the coronavirus protocol, and people were hating each other about that early on, it was also confusing and new that I don't think anybody had really completely put anybody in a category. Like somebody who was like, no, 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 don't lock the economy down. Don't do that. You know, like, I don't want to wear a mask. You know, even though people were hating each other for that kind of thing, even back then, I don't think they had really, I don't think it had really calcified. I don't think that people had really put those people into the other category yet because it was also new and confusing. You know, I don't think people had really formed hardline opinions. I don't think they had really chosen a side. You know, a lot of people were just doing what you were supposed to do, trying to be safe, but I don't think they really had a chance. I think things were so confusing and new that people didn't really have a chance to, you know, I don't think their hearts really hardened quite yet and they were scared. And they were also look. They were also looking to each other for entertainment, uh, support, uh, just contact. And uh, you know the way people were talking too. After a month, people were talking like they'd been in solitary confinement for two years. They were talking like they'd been in the hole in jail. It was funny to see that. It was just like, you're acting like you were put in solitary confinement for the last year. You've just been, you've had a limited amount of contact with people for a month. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was funny to see that, but people's hearts hadn't really hardened yet. And then it was around summer 2020 that like the comp, like people started to form more hardline opinions about coronavirus. 
They had had months of consuming information. They had months of fear that had built up. The sense of excitement that was like something new is happening. And even though it's scary, it's interesting. Like that had kind of given way. And people, you could just tell they were, they were starting to kind of get sick of each other. Like people who lived with each other were starting to get sick of each other. You know, people's hearts were just starting to harden a little bit. They weren't tougher. They weren't more rugged. They weren't veterans of some battle. But their hearts just closed off a little bit. And then summer 2020, like, like that just seems to have, I really, I would say that was the, the single biggest event and it went on for months, which you can't forget. That was the single biggest event. And I would say that it was a, it was a several month long event. That seems to have been what really divided people even more. The differences in the way that was covered the level of moral panic, like the moral panic of that exceeded Coronavirus moral panic. The level of collective psychosis in response to summer 2020 exceeded Coronavirus. 100%. I, I say that without any hesitation. That divided people more than anything else that had gone on. It hardened people's hearts more than anything. It removed people from their own sense of identity. It, um, and nobody will ever be able to convince me otherwise. Because I watched it happen. I observed it. That seems to have been when people's hearts really hardened. Even though a lot of people were very emotional, people were very hysterical, something closed off during that period. And even though people will cite the election, people will cite January 666th, to me, like the, the real point of no return was summer 2020. Doesn't matter what you think about it. Doesn't matter what your opinion is of the events, of the response. To me, I don't know how anybody could objectively say otherwise. That seems to have been the point of no return. At that point, I knew that like nothing will ever actually be, nothing in the foreseeable future will ever actually feel completely right in our society and culture. And I think we're still seeing the fallout from that. We're still seeing you know, the way that, even though the moral panic has died down, we're still seeing tremors from it we're certainly still seeing the cultural impact of it every single day in everything but uh, I think that was really the point of no return whoo Where are we going here? Yeah, I don't have too much. I'm gonna end the, an hour and a half. Wow, I didn't realize I've been talking that long. Not much more to say. Just that, uh, you know, yeah, you know, I'm hanging in there. I've got to. You know, I'm alternating between having these moments where I feel like Hulk Hogan. You know, like when Hulk Hogan's in a headlock and he starts, like, rallying. I'll have these moments like that where, like, I can feel myself doing that. Where I'm, like, I'm shaking my fists at the audience, getting them, and they're cheering and I'm like, yeah, you know, like I'm, I'm Hulk Hogan. Like, 
you know, his power up. Somebody has Hulk Hogan in a, in a headlock and Hulk Hogan, what he was always good at is looking defeated. Like he's, he was very charismatic in his prime, but if you watch old Hulk Hogan matches, he was really good at looking like a sad old man. Like even when he was young, it's, it's probably cause he balded young. And that, that's something I want to say too. It's amazing. Cause I mean, I worshiped Hulk Hogan when I was a kid, me and my neighbor, Scotty, I was like five. He was four. We got matching yellow tank tops. We got match. They weren't even the right color. They were like these neon yellow tank tops, but we got them together so that we could look like Hulk Hogan. But what's amazing is that we all worshiped this bald guy. Like you think about, oh, bald guys don't get a chance. And it's like, it's amazing that all of these kids were like, my idol is that bald guy, not just a bald guy. He has like, he's bald with this like long, uh, what do they call it? Like a skullet, a skullet, this bald guy with a bleached skullet. But little kids are like, he's got charisma. He's cool. (laughs) It's like we're all rallying around this bald guy. But, uh, you know, Hulk Hogan in his old matches, he was always really good at looking defeated. And and because I think he looked a lot older than he was, it always looked really sad. Like my friend Nick pointed this out to me. He was watching a WrestleMania a few years ago at a friend's house and he hadn't watched wrestling for a few years. And he messaged me and he was like, he's like, you know what? I just noticed watching wrestling again. They spend so much time, quote unquote, dazed. Like they spend a lot of time just like acting like they're out of it, you know, and that's how they catch their breath. That's how they kind of plan the next move. But it's funny because it's true. And Hulk Hogan would do that a lot. Hulk Hogan would spend a lot of time looking dazed. And then the guy he's fighting would get him in a headlock kind of a side headlock. And that's when Hulk Hogan would start rallying when he would start like, you know, pumping his fists up and down and the crowd would cheer him on. And then he would elbow the guy in the ribs, usually do a clothesline. And then that's when he would do his, you know, his ear thing where he would like do, he would move his hand around in circles, put it up to his ear, get the crowd all pumped up. And that's when he would do the Hogan, the big leg drop. But I have moments where I feel like that where I'm like, I'm just feeling like extremely hopeless and down. And then I'll just have this little moment during the night or the day. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm rallying. I'm getting, I'm getting ready. I'm pumping myself up. But then it's, it's the crash again, you know? So that's what I've been dealing with. And, you know, I'm I'm trying to get on track. I I just am. It's just, uh, it's uh, not to close this out with more uh, therapy talk, but still it's like, I'm just like, man, like, this is a rough one. This is a true dark night of the soul. Fortunately, I don't feel like there's anything inside of me that I have to figure out or reconcile. Fortunately, I've already been through that. Not that there's not more to do, but it's like, I feel like I've already kind of come to terms with many things about myself and just about my history and everything. But, uh, you know, I'm sober for the most part, like, uh, still vaping. I need to figure that out. Uh, you know, caffeine's a, caffeine's a drug, dude. Nicotine's a drug, but no, you know, I haven't, it hasn't compelled me to drink or anything like that, but I'm just like, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just definitely a, a real dark one. And I know there's a lot of work for me to do practical work, life survival stuff, but, uh, and I, I can't ask for any breaks, you know, I've had a good life. And I can't ask for 
any breaks. Like I, I don't feel like it's my uh, right. I don't feel like I have the right to ask for any more breaks than I've already had in life. Uh, but I could use one, <laughs> you know, if, if a break were to present itself, I don't think I would turn it down, but I'm just like, man, uh, some sort of relief right now. Just some sort of relief is all I, I really want. Maybe I need to go to a restaurant. Maybe I need to go to a hotel. Maybe I just need to be the Lord's guest for a minute. <laughs> Maybe that's why we have restaurants and hotels. Maybe the fact that I haven't been in a restaurant or a hotel for a very long time is exactly what I'm lacking. Maybe I just need a little time as the Lord's guest. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. 